Have you ever laid awake at night, tossing and turning, unable to fall asleep? Or maybe you've drifted off, then suddenly you're jolted awake and can't get your mind to turn back off? You may be familiar with these scenarios if you've ever suffered from insomnia. And you may have even tossed and turned yourself to a point that you wonder, can you die from insomnia? Well, on today's episode, I'm here to tell you that actually, you can. Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. interns and welcome back. We are here today with a medical mystery episode and we are joined again by our special guest Jason Chamberlain. Hello everyone. Who is going to get quite a schooling in genetics today. Can't wait. (laughs) Fatal familial insomnia or sometimes just shortened to FFI is a rare genetic condition. Now The term rare can sometimes be a very broad range in medicine, but in this case, we really genuinely mean rare. The best guess is currently that only about 100 people who are members of only 30 family lines carry the gene that causes this disease. In the world of genetics, it's an autosomal dominant mutation, which is really just a fancy way of saying you only need one copy of this gene from your mom or your pops for you to wind up with it. And if you have the gene, it's a 50-50 shot that you're going to give that mutation to your child. While normally insomnia is considered a sleeping disorder, fatal insomnia is actually a prion disease meaning it's less to do with sleep specifically and is actually the result of a malfunction of proteins in the brain called prions. This is already getting complicated. (laughs) Stay with me here. So to give you some context, one of the most famous prion disorders that you may already know about would be mad cow disease. Hmm. Basically, the main takeaway here is you don't want a prion disease. (laughs) In FFI, it's specifically the PRPN gene that causes the prion issues. And this mutation is passed down from your parents, although there are some pretty rare cases where the mutation actually happens on its own. To understand the science behind this disorder, we kind of need to understand how our body regulates sleep to begin with. Generally, Sleep functions are controlled by the thalamus, which is basically the part of your brain that filters incoming sensory information, except for smell. It just, it doesn't like smell. So 
I'm, I don't know what happened there, but your thalamus hates smell. It takes that sensory input and then it forwards it on to the other parts of your brain for processing. The thalamus does a lot of other cool things that we're not going to get into, but it also plays a really important role in regulating sleep and wakefulness. Now, on to the real brain science. I'm sorry, I have a question already. <laughs> okay. Thalamus and hypothalamus? Is that something... I think you're thinking of the hippocampus. Oh, jeez. All right. <laughs> That's <I am>. okay. <laughs> it's a rough start. They sound kind of similar. I totally get it. In your brain, you have many different types of proteins, which all have different functions. And one of those proteins, the one that is affected by this prion disorder specifically, is the PRP protein. Before you even ask, don't, don't ask me what it does, because... Doctors and medical scientists are not really entirely sure, and this really would not be a great medical mystery if we already had all the answers. We do know that in FFI, this protein forms in a very incorrect, which turns out to be very toxic, shape. And this shape causes it to build up in your thalamus, which ultimately damages that part of your brain. The slow buildup and damage to the thalamus could explain why there's a pretty long delay before symptoms are actually seen in patients with the disorder. The average age patients start experiencing initial symptoms is between 40 and 60 years old. That's pretty late. It definitely is, mm -hmm. especially for a disease that actually progresses really quickly once you show symptoms. It's a mutational disease? Right. So with it being genetic, you would actually be born with the defective gene mm. that affects the way that that protein is formed. But I guess it's that it takes so long for that amount of the incorrect protein to start to build up in the thalamus before you start experiencing symptoms. Mm. Once you do start experiencing symptoms, though, it definitely progresses quickly. In a way, it kind of sneaks up on you. The first symptom that most people have is, I mean, you could probably guess this one, difficulty sleeping. I think we would more commonly generally just assume is a bad case of insomnia, which also makes sense given the disorder. But I would have to think that if you didn't know that you had this gene mutation, you'd be none the wiser that you have a prion disease and you would just assume that you can't sleep. Do they know where all of these families are? They actually do. So mm. they've done a lot of work to trace down those family lines where this mutation has occurred. So for the most case in our, at least in our modern day, people would already know that they're part of a family line that is a high risk for having this mutation. But back a few hundred years ago when this first presented they really wouldn't have had any clue that there was a connection there i feel like with something so rare it probably is not easy to study given the size of our world and the size of nations that maybe we don't even talk with 
right? You're totally right. And I think that's a big part of why we haven't made more progress on studying the disorder or being able to study possible treatment options for it. And I think another huge hurdle is that the life expectancy is very, very poor once people start showing symptoms. So with it being autosomal dominant, you only need one copy of the mutated gene to have the disorder, which means that within a family line, you could have people who do get that mutated copy and you could have people who don't. And unless you're running a genetic sequence on every member within the family line, most people even within the family wouldn't know if they are carrying the mutated gene that's going to suddenly show up and ruin their life when they turn 40. And I'm sure that probably more than 80% of the world would not have access to gene therapy or any technology like that generally speaking unless there's a pretty significant concern or cause for it genetic sequencing can get very expensive and most of the information is so redundant that there's really not a need to ever do it for the general Mm. population yeah for some people, the sleep challenges also come along with confusion and trouble focusing, although these would also be common symptoms for anyone who's not getting an adequate night's sleep. So I don't know that these would really be a red herring that something's critically wrong in the initial stages either. I have a hard time imagining that any North American doctor would be able to catch this in a timely manner. Or even if they they did, what they, what could they do, right? That's so true. They're just going to tell you to stop looking at screens before bedtime. <laughs> As the disease starts to progress, the next symptoms can include high blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, weight loss, difficulty managing your body temperature, excessive sweating, and double vision. Oh, and if you do manage to get a bit of sleep, vivid dreams are apparently super common. The latter stages of progression is where you see the really worrisome symptoms start to show up. So difficulty controlling your physical movements, hallucinations, delirium, and difficulty swallowing. It's really tough, though, at this stage to prove causation versus correlation, meaning it's really difficult to decide if these are true symptoms of the actual disorder or if these are secondary symptoms that are being spurred on by the lack of sleep. Mm -hmm. Either way, the prognosis is extremely poor. You'll likely be dead within 6 to 36 months of the first sign of symptoms. So there was a show uh, on TV in England where... Some celebrities and some average people went into a house. There was cameras behind mirrors everywhere. And they were in a competition to not fall asleep. And it went for days and days and days. And you watch the degradation of these people as they try to stay awake. That sounds horrible. Yeah, it was kind of entertaining to watch when it's all just cut down to a 45-minute show. Right. Right. But, you know, how long can you go without sleeping? Right. Right. Because sleep is so important for us. And I mean, I think that's why some of those like latter stage symptoms, it's really hard to know. Is that is that actually a symptom of the disorder or is it just you really you really will start to lose it when you haven't slept in that long? 
if, if I do a night shift at my work and uh, then I've got stuff to do the next day and I've been up and I go past maybe the 28-hour mark, 30-hour mark without sleep, I actually start to get dizzy quite <laughs> yeah. quickly and I cannot control what I eat or what I don't. Yep. Um, and my mood completely changes and it changes fast mm-hmm. as well. And it's physically difficult to move around, I find, when you're yeah, that fatigued. Yeah, it's like you're trying to move, like, underwater. Yeah. Like, everything is just slow and sludgy. And think underwater. Yes. So I yeah. guess we'll get into this, but uh, it's really interesting to think, what is going on in your brain that it, it needs to shut down for eight hours and then, poof, it's fine again. You know, right. What, what, so maybe we'll talk about that as we work through this but so I feel like you kind of touched on it there which is when I first heard of this this disorder the biggest thing that popped up in my head was this like giant blazing red question mark that just said why don't you just knock them out yes medically induced I don't know coma right like that will cure them just put them to sleep best medication ever (laughs) so I did some research, obviously, on this disorder, and there obviously is no cure, and we can attempt to treat the symptoms, but because, you know, this disease is so rare, there's not even a standard process for treating symptoms. Sleeping medications or uh, barbiturates is like one option or one potential line of treatment, but it really hasn't made much difference in the lives of the people who suffer from the disorder. Once you get towards the end stages of the disease, which I mean, like we said, is usually only about six months after the initial symptoms, the person actually becomes stuck in a state of pre-sleep limbo called hypnagogia. So, In healthy people, this is the state that you're in just before you fall asleep. Is that where you know you're going to sleep and it feels glorious? (laughs) Pretty much. It's Mm. it's when you're just kind of, you're not quite awake anymore, but you're not really fully out of it. Okay. During this stage of FFI, the person will commonly and repeatedly move their limbs as if they're dreaming. Kind of like when you bring a puppy home and they take a nap on the floor and you see them kind of twitching all over the place when they're in the midst of chasing a rabbit in their dream. In sleep studies that we've done on patients with FFI, we see them sleeping shorter periods of time with little to no deep sleep and shorter periods of REM sleep. On PET scans of their brain, we also see decreased activity in the thalamus region, which, I mean, kind of lines up with knowing that the protein within the thalamus is causing damage to it. Would they normally see increased thalamus activity during deep sleep? I think normally we would see increased activity within the thalamus during the stages when you're falling asleep. And then I think when you're transitioning between sleep cycles, but I'm not entirely sure on that, but Mm. you would definitely want to see more activity during transitions into sleep and back into wakefulness than having the opposite and having decreased activity within that region. Now, 
circling back to the question, can't we just knock them out? So the problem here is there is a massive difference between rendering somebody unconscious or in a medically induced coma compared to the natural processes that happen in our body throughout the various sleep stages. And those stages, unfortunately, we cannot medically mimic. Like what? So as we cycle through sleep stages, our bodies go into a state of recovery, essentially, Mm -hmm. where cells regenerate, we repair things that have sustained damage throughout the day, even things that we don't see or we don't know about, little bits of our lung and our livers and our blood. It gives our body the downtime where we're not in a functioning state, putting a demand on our body where it can focus on really rejuvenating all of those areas. I think our temperature changes a bit too when we go into sleep. Our core temperature, I think, does it cool down? That would make sense, but I don't actually know. Okay. Eventually, all patients with FFI die, usually from heart, brain, and general organ failure due to the lack of natural sleep stages, which would normally give our bodies the chance to heal and regenerate all of those tissues. Some studies have even said that in autopsies of these patients, the thalamus itself seems like it's been completely hollowed out. Oh, wow. I know that's quite an image to have in your head. Do you know how big a thalamus is? Like, are we talking like a pinhead? It's definitely bigger than a pinhead, but I don't have a specific reference to give Mm. you. Um, But it's, it's not necessarily its own organ, more so as it's like a region of the brain. Okay, that makes sense. Scientific research continues to study this disease, but like we said, with the low occurrence rates and the quick progression of the disease, scientists don't really have a lot of living subjects to try different treatment options on. So far, the most we've found is that vitamin supplements like B6, B12, iron, and folic acid can help improve general wellness prior to symptoms or in the very early stages of the disease, but it does very little to actually slow the progression. Melatonin supplements have been tested with mixed success. They've shown some improvements, but it's definitely not something to write home about. Sedatives and anti-anxiety medications are commonly used, although they also show mixed results and don't really have very much promise in treatment. In possibly the weirdest study ever, uh, researchers tested the use of GHB. Do you know what the street name for that one would be? I know what the street name is. That's like a date rape You drug. got it. But that know, is the date rape drug. But you know what? I will say I know that some bodybuilders use it to uh, get a very deep sleep so they can recover better for their next workout. That's really bizarre. I had not actually heard of that. I know that because a family member dated a bodybuilder. That oh, did that. <laughs> oh boy. There we go. It's hard to imagine date rape drugging yourself just to get a good night's sleep, but to each their own, I guess. In the study where scientists were testing using GHB, 
They found that it did prompt slow wave sleep in patients with FFI, but I couldn't actually find that specific study published anywhere. I just found uh, excerpts from it in different articles when I was researching this. So I'm not sure how legitimate that study actually was or if there was any follow-up that happened after that. Nobody has referenced where that's from, right? I think no one wants to actually take credit for saying, hey, we tested (laughs) this. We tried this. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? If there were more, if this disease was more prevalent, um, there would be time and money put into this research. But I think because it's so rare, uh, it's just not, in the spotlight enough that's true and you really can't do like a widespread study on this either because your patients can be so few and far between that it's not like you can gather you know 30 patients with this disorder and do a blind study where you try some people with this treatment and some people with that treatment and you see what becomes of it because you might only have you know one patient every couple of years in that family line that actually presents with the disease yeah. And how are you going to get funding for something that is so out there? Most people don't even know is even a thing. Right. So yeah. then you just turn to the date rape drug. I guess. <laughs> yes. Now, as if this isn't already the stuff of nightmares. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Bad <laughs> reference for a disease that keeps you awake. But um, it gets even worse. So if you thought that you know, you're safe based on how rare the disease is and that it has a very clear genetic link through several family lines, you'd be mostly right. But there is a version of the disease which is called sporadic FFI, and it does not have the genetic mutation that we see in traditional FFI, meaning It just seems to pick its victims at random. Oh, goody. (laughs) It is even more rare, though, thankfully, with only 24 cases documented worldwide as of 2016, which was the last stats I could find. I'm assuming that there's not a lot of effort that goes into tracking the occurrence of this. With the sporadic form of the disease, Patients are more likely to actually have declining mental functions as the primary symptom, and they might not even notice the sleep disruptions, which are the kind of traditional hallmark of traditional FFI. So, I mean, at least that's a relief. What, that it will probably go undiagnosed because you think it's other factors? Yeah, you probably wouldn't even know that you have it. Did you say that it can come and go? No, once you have it, you have it. Oh. Yeah. It. I mean, it's sporadic just from the sense that... There's no genetic link that they know of. Right. You have no way of knowing if you would ever suddenly, randomly happen to develop it. There's no better feeling when you cannot sleep than... And I, I really mean this, like, than when you've been up for 28, 30 hours or more and your head hits that pillow... And you are just gone. And they mm. say if you f- if you fall asleep in less than 10 minutes from your head hitting a pillow, you are overtired. Like your brain needs to calm down and, and, and before it can get into sleep. 
I don't know where I read that. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. <laughs> okay, not not a published medical journal, but we'll take we'll take okay. it. But imagine, imagine just you're super tired and you put your head on that pillow, and you can't sleep. I feel like that would be torture. Right. Two hours go by, you still can't sleep. I cannot even imagine like that feeling. Right. Yeah. And I mean, when you think of like. We say that the prognosis is so poor because people on average die within six months of first symptoms, but you have to think how long that must feel for those people experiencing it. Imagine like, I mean, you work night shifts sometimes, I work night shifts sometimes. I know that exhaustion when you've pushed yourself beyond the point of you should have gone to bed a long time ago. And imagine going through that for like, six months yeah and knowing that you know the the end is going to be the forever sleep it's there's no cure you're not it's you just wait for it to happen it's so shocking to me that you can't be put into a you know when you 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 go in for a surgery and they put you to sleep Mm -hmm. and you feel yourself drifting off and it doesn't feel that unlike just falling asleep but that uh with people that are unfortunate to have this disease it doesn't work for them like they they they, maybe they'll be unconscious but their body won't do the repairs and the the things that we don't really understand how or why they happen Mm -hmm. it just won't happen for them right it's so out there to me it really i think highlights how much we don't know about how the brain functions like we can turn Mm. off the body and we can turn off feeling to the body and make everything shut down but we can't force the brain to go into the proper wavelength of sleep that prompts all of those things to happen within the body well when we were talking just a few minutes ago that where you were talking i thought i wonder what would happen if these people experienced a concussion where they were actually knocked out from a physical trauma side to side shaking of the brain and but I guess that would be the same as a medically induced coma where the brain needs to reset. But it's not going through those sleep cycles where you've got, I guess, certain hormones and, and um, I just don't know what happens during sleep. Mm-hmm. That cycle is just not there. Yeah. Well, and so, especially with, I think with the thalamus playing such a key role in regulating the hormones that are produced, which kind of cue up our body to do the things it's supposed to do during sleep and when that becomes damaged to the point that it's not doing its job anymore we still already have such a poor understanding of the function of the thalamus and the different hormones and why it works the way that it does but when that function becomes completely not working anymore the whole body just it doesn't matter how much we shut everything down all of those cues that line everything up are just not falling into place anymore. Yeah, the brain's really an interesting organ because every other organ, for the most part, it's a very specific function and it's almost replaceable, like through transplant mm-hmm. in many cases. With the brain, uh, although we seem we have these definitions for different parts of the brain, and well, I could almost visualize like a different part for the part we're talking about now in a different color on a textbook yeah you'd think you could just they could cut that out and put a new one in you know but you just 
you can't go near the brain, right? You can't open it up and change parts. Totally. It's so complex. Yeah. So. Well, and, and even when you touched on, you know, that when you fall asleep during surgery, when you're being knocked out or put under, there's a really weird phenomenon that actually happens with a surprising number of people, which has been previously really underreported. Do I want to hear this? No, you don't. Okay. <laughs> I thought so. Um, where the body falls asleep, but the brain is active the entire time. No. So patients are alert. They can hear everything happening around them. Mm. They can still feel sensation, um, Uh. to a certain extent. It's as if the brain is still fully present, but the body has turned off. So it's, you really start to get into the science even of anesthesiology where, there is a certain level that goes too far where people are at risk of respiratory collapse if you've given them too much. But if you haven't given them quite enough or for some reason certain people seem more prone to it than others, the brain just will not turn off even though all cues from the outside looks like the person is completely down and out and you know yeah. down for the count. On my last surgery, which, for, which was for a hernia, I woke up during the operation. Right. And one of the nurses was kind of had her hands on my hair. She was kind of trying to put me back <laughs> to sleep, She's, which, which did it. But I remember I woke up with my eyes and I looked down at the surgeon and he was operating. <laughs> and I said, hey, doc, is there everything going okay down there? <laughs> and, and he looked at me. He's like, yes, yes, Mr. Chamberlain, it's going good. I'm like, that's good. It's good to hear. And I went back to sleep and I remember that couldn't yeah. feel anything though and yeah. then you've got people that can not move they can't even open their eyes they can't scream but they can feel what's right? going on oh man yeah it's a shame we haven't figured out the brain yet i know it's such a bizarre disconnect sometimes between what the brain can do versus what the body can do and like yeah. in in your case where you couldn't actually feel anything nope. but the brain was still awake versus yep. You know, people who the brain won't let the rest of the body wake up, but they actually still have physical sensation, which is so bizarre in a completely different sense. And then there's when people are in a coma and some people can hear what's going on, but they can't come out of the coma. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Or it or it ebbs and flows. I had a friend who was in a coma for about two years. And when I quizzed him about it, he said... There were times that it felt like he wanted to wake up where it felt like he was starting to come out from the darkness and he could hear things happening around him, but it was like it was too heavy and he couldn't quite come out and then he would just go back to sleep. So it's almost like an in and out, even though to everyone on the outside, he was in a coma for the entire time and was never anywhere near waking up. Yeah. Ugh, man. These poor people, though. What a nasty disease to get. It really is. But, you know, it's fair enough that you probably shouldn't let it keep you up at night. (laughs) (laughs) For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. 
And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode. 